All right. Okay, I guess I'll get started. Um, thank you so much for coming today. Appreciate um, you being here. My name is Dori Lansbach. I'm the relationship IQ here, relationship IQ assistant at Pepperdine for the Boone Center for the Family. Um, relationship IQ is a program that we have on campus to help college students learn about um, healthy relationships and learn how to generate and maintain them. Um, I'm also a former Pepperdine student, graduated here in 2014. Um, just got my doctorate in psychology where I did my doctoral research on psychological abuse and romantic relationships. So I'm very passionate about um, relationships, especially on healthy relationships, um, which also leads me to um, today's topic. So today we're going to be talking about navigating romantic relationships in a broken world. Um, and it is my guess that many of you, the majority of you, are married, um, maybe for many years, maybe quite recently. Maybe you're single. Um, I'm single. Maybe you're divorced and dating, looking for that next partner for your life. Maybe you're divorced and happy that way. Um, but my other guess is that you have a lot of um, people in your um, church community, young adults that you know, um, and other sort of communities that you live in um, who are dating and who are struggling with dating. And hopefully today you came here looking to learn more about dating um, and relationships and how you can help others navigate those. So really the focus today will be um, helping prepare and equip you to help young adults through navigating relationships and maybe even some of your friends. Um, and I also hope that even if you are married, you might learn some really interesting things that you can still consider in your marriage because I'm a firm believer that we can all be lifelong learners and still grow um, together. So uh, next slide, please. Um, so I wanna open this up to you guys, start this way. What makes dating difficult? If you think back during your years of when you were dating, um, or maybe you still are, what are some of the challenges that people face today? Trust. Trust, yes. That's a big one. Expectations. Okay, what kind of expectations? A lot. <laughs> <Just> a lot. <laughs> yeah. In terms of um, where the relationship will go, yeah, a lot of ambiguity with relationships. Kelly. Finding the right person. Finding the right person, yes. So, Marissa, could you go to the next slide, please? Um, so, these are three more reasons why dating and dating can be really challenging for people. Um, number one, identity. So, we're often prone to mixing up our identity um, within our relationships. Um, and we can be prone to kind of getting our self-worth and different aspects of ourselves too closely intertwined if we're not secure in who we are in Christ. Um, this can be a big issue when we're dating. Um, if we're so eager to find a relationship, sometimes we'll tend to morph into those qualities that actually aren't us, but we think the other person wants from us. Um, sexuality. Romantic relationships involve our sexuality. That's not just referring to sexual intercourse, of course, um, um, but relating out of gender. God created us as sexual beings because he gave us this beautiful gift of creating life within marriage, ideally. Um, so we have this creation capacity, and there's this sacredness, this specialness that comes from romantic relationships, knowing that we have this potential to create life. Um, and then overvaluing heart. How often do you hear, oh, just follow your heart in relationships? If you think back to many, many years ago, um, and actually in many cultures today, they still have arranged marriages, but actually 80% of cultures across the world have used arranged marriages and advocated for them at some point. 
Not saying that we should go back to that, but there is maybe something to that in valuing logic a little bit more in relationships, because it's quite easy to just get caught up in how you feel. But that's when we get hurt sometimes. Um, so, why do we date? What do you all think is the purpose of dating? What? To get to know a person. To get to know a person, yes. What are some other reasons why we might date? Kelly. Have fun. Have fun, absolutely. Like a buddy for entertainment, I've done that. Get married. Get married, yep, find that spouse. Next slide, please. So, a few more reasons why we date. Well, we know that God created us for relationship. Not only relationship, or excuse me, relationship with him, but relationship for other people. We see that when he created Eve after he made Adam. Adam was great. There's nothing wrong with him, but he said it wasn't good for him to be alone. So he wants us to be in relationship with people. And he cares deeply about whom we choose. So of course he wants to walk with us in that journey as we find a life partner. Um, oftentimes when we date, we're longing to seek this void. Maybe it's um, not knowing who we are in Christ, not feeling secure in our identity. And maybe it's just longing to have a partner. But if we're not careful, we might seek to fill that void by running two relationships. Um, we might run away from them to suppress that um, longing that we have. And we'll sometimes answer, or excuse me, we'll often ask the questions of, am I loved and am I lovable in dating? We know that's not true. God is our ultimate source of our worth, our identity. He's our creator. He knows everything about us. Um, but it's still difficult. It doesn't make dating in that process any easier for people, no matter the age. Next slide, please. Okay. So now that we've talked a little bit about why we date, some of the challenges, um, where people are today with kind of overvaluing heart oftentimes, um, I want to give you guys a practical model. So this is called the Relationship Attachment Model by Dr. John Van Epp. We'll have um, some resources at the end of the presentation today. Um, but this is a really practical tool to help um, people progress their relationship in a healthy way. So the basis of this is that there's five forces of attachment. They're all five bonding dynamics. Um, and how we move throughout our relationship um, is going to affect how the relationship goes. This will make more sense in a minute. So we have the five components. Knowing how well you know somebody. I think that also means how well you know yourself. Um, trust in a relationship. Relying. Can you rely on them? That's putting trust into action. Commitment and then touch, and that's on a, um, a spectrum all the way from hand-holding to sexual intercourse. Next slide, please. <coughs> okay, I like this picture, whoa, pony. Um, the safe zone. So this is a key principle of um, the relationship attachment model. So we can never go farther in one bonding area than you have in the previous. Oh my gosh, this would have saved me so much heartache in my life if I had known about this earlier. So thank you, Boone Center. Um, for now teaching me this. So I'm going to give you a little visual of the safe zone. Um, so knowing, well it should be, essentially, hopefully you can see this, it should be on a downward slope. So trust, you should never trust somebody more than you know of the person. Um, so for me, this could look like if somebody said, hey, pull up with a van, I have a golden retriever in here. Do you want to get in? Yeah. I'd be dead. Okay. So you don't want to trust somebody more than you know them. So no needs to be high. Trust is low. Reliance, same thing. 
We see these in overly dependent or codependent relationships. People rely on people to meet their emotional needs, their physical needs, any sort of needs before they actually have proven themselves trustworthy or even before they know them. Same with commitment. Sometimes we'll see like really intense scale of commitment where somebody wants to get married to you one week of, or says they love you right away or they want to get married to you in less than a month. Um, that can be a sign of really uh, extreme insecurity or even sometimes those are predictors of like intimate partner violence. They want to get you committed so that they can start abusing you in certain ways. Same thing with touch. We don't want to move too far um, with touch too fast or before marriage, of course, with um, sex because it just sets us up for a lot of emotional and physical pain. Emotional pain, sorry, I shouldn't say physical pain. <laughs> um, okay, so safe zone. Never go farther in one bonding area than you have in the previous. Next slide, please. Take a sip of my water. Okay, these slides are like so bright. Um, it's kind of a lot, kind of an eyesore. I hope it's okay, but it's just kind of my personality too. Um, okay, so the first stage we're going to talk about is knowing. I have up in the top corner Psalm 139, um, well, not one through six, but one. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. So when we're thinking about getting to know somebody, um, we want to first think about how well God knows us. God knows everything, that, everything about us, our heart, our heart, our dreams, our desires, our personality characteristics, our weaknesses, um, and he knows what you need in a spouse. So when we get to know somebody, we get to know someone through ex our experience of and observation of their thoughts, feelings, and actions over time. Um, there's something that John Van Up calls the no-quo, Intimacy, you can think of it as talk plus togetherness plus, plus time. So talk meaning mutual self-disclosure. How many of you have been in relationships where the other person talks about themselves the majority of the time and they don't ask about <coughs> you? Not fun. You both need to be sharing parts of your life together. Um, togetherness in diversified experiences. So you can't get to know someone through just spending a week with them really or just doing a couple of activities. It takes many different types of experiences over time. Um, next slide, please. Okay, does anybody watch Columbo? I loved Columbo. Oh, good, at least one. Okay, <laughs> so um, an old detective show I grew up on with my parents. Um, when we're thinking about getting to know somebody, there's an acronym, yes, called FACES. Um, family background, these are different components of a person that you should aim to get to know when you're dating. Um, and even when you're married, you might not know all of these things as a married couple, so you can consider them when you go home. Um, family background, actions plus attitudes of the conscience, compatibility potential, examples of other relationships, and skills for relationships. I'm gonna get into all of those in a little bit more detail in a second. Um, I put Columbo up there <laughs> as just one more thing because he was a detective who didn't, they were basically innocent until proven guilty. So he took his time in determining all aspects of the crime and that's how I kind of believe that God wants us to go about dating. He wants us to take our time to get to know everybody. Learn as much as you can about the person that you're with. Um, okay, next slide, please, Mauricio. So, family background. Um, so, childhood experiences are some of the strongest predictors of what your partner will be like as a spouse and a parent. Now, I have not personally experienced this as I'm not married, but I have seen it in dating, and I'm sure many of you understand this as well. Um, it's really, really important to consider what your partner has been through in life, um, the highs and the lows. 
So good things uh, and bad things, such as neglect, abandonment, abuse. Um, how were they treated by their um, parents growing up, their siblings? Things to explore the expression of, such as how they handled um, communication in their family. Okay, how did they handle conflict? Was there a general openness to having engaging discussions about what the issues that are going on at home? How was affection express, expressed? Excuse me. Was it expressed, or did you have a parent that was pretty emotionally closed off and didn't know how to handle um, or talk about their emotions? And then closeness. Um, this is something to consider, and you might see this too culturally um, a little bit more. How close is your partner to their family of origin, and in what what ways? Do you see that? Um, for instance, are there certain expectations for visitations of your, excuse me, visitation of the grandchildren? Um, frequent stop-ins stop by the parents. Do they want you to come visit all the time? Or are you not really in that close of communication with them? Excuse me, frequent communication with them. Those are things that are going to um, become really visible in a relationship one day. You want to also pay close attention to formation of roles um, in their family of origin. Um, also, relationship with same-sex parent, oftentimes um, the relationship, like my relationship with my mom, for instance, could be a good example of how <laughs> I formed kind of my identity um, or my personality. Relationship with opposite sex parent, we'll often see that, like if I have a good relationship with my dad, I see him a certain way, I might tend to see men all the same way as I saw my father. And that's oftentimes, as you guys know, how we see the Lord initially. Um, next slide, please. So, attitudes and actions of the conscience. The conscience monitors per a person's thoughts, words, and actions according to an internal code of values and beliefs. Um, if you have somebody with really, really great polished skills but no conscience, disaster. Okay, that's a recipe, of course, for a manipulative and self-serving partner. They have to have these different um, attitudes and beliefs that they put into play consistently. And without a healthy conscience, moods are expressed unchecked. So um, you might see this in a partner that has a quick trigger. Um, they're upset really easily over something. These are things to watch out for in early dating. Excuse me, next slide, please. Um, okay, I'm not gonna read all of these off, but I did put them up there in case you would like to take a picture of them. Um, these are some really interesting questions to consider that you might um, offer or show young adults that you're helping <coughs> when they're thinking about examining people. Um, it's really difficult when you're in kind of the thick of things, the heat of things, to think about, ah, what should I be asking? What should I be looking for? So um, I sometimes carry around like little lists in my journal of things that I want to get to to ask. Okay, next slide, please. All right, next factor, compatibility potential. Um, I love this quote by John Van Up. One of the greatest gifts you can give your children is to be cautiously selective of the partner with whom they will eventually be entrusted. I'm sure that many of you who are married and have children would agree with that. Um, so three different aspects of compatibility potential. Chemistry. Chemistry is not the be-all, end-all, of course. Looks change. <laughs> Tragic accidents happen. That sounds really bad, but looks can change quickly. Um, your attraction uh, will ebb and flow as life hits you in different ways. Um, complementarity. How do the differences of between your partners benefit you? Over time, hopefully you'll start to grow more and more alike um, and kind of your weaknesses your weaknesses their strengths will blend and it'll be a good balance for the two of you 
Comparability, consider personality, values, and lifestyles. I think that's probably what we think of most often when we think of um, compatibility potential. What are their beliefs? What are their lifestyle habits? What are their morals? Are we gonna align in this way? Next slide, please. Okay, examples of other relationships. So um, four different types of relationships you can definitely look to um, to see as an indicator of how they might treat you. Romantic partners, okay. This isn't always the case, but say for instance, you have someone that's been unfaithful in several relationships. Um, I've always heard Kelly say, you'd be a fool if you think that they won't do it to you. You're probably not gonna be the one to change them. So look at those past experiences and consider how that might play out in your relationship. Um, I personally tend to always believe the woman before me versus the man when I first start dating somebody. I look at that and I give a little bit more weight to it. Um, friends, you'll know them by their fruit. Okay, what qualities do you see in their friends? Um, are they good people? Are they walking with God? Do they have high discernment? Oftentimes, you'll, hopefully, they'll be surrounding themselves with friends that are um, congruent with their personalities. And then um, their family, of course, and strangers. How do they treat the, the checkout clerk? How do they treat the server? Those are huge indicators um, of interesting personality dynamics and how they might treat you later on. Okay, next slide, please. Skills for relationships. Okay, this is the last one of that acronym. Um, so healthy relationship skills to be on the look for, to be on the hunt for, high congruence. Okay, do they deeply know and understand themselves? And are they true to those aspects of their identity that they say they believe in and that they hold true to? Um, open self-disclosure. This is kind of goes back to that mutual self-disclosure. What will they share about themselves with you? How will they do it? How often will they do it? Is it a two-way relationship? Um, empathetic listening. Okay, I always like this phrase, listening to respond or listening to understand. Are your partners listening just to get the next word in? And that's not just when they're in a conflict, just day-to-day -day life. Or are they listening to really understand what you're saying? If you pause and ask them to repeat back what you just said to them, that's a great test. Um, conflict resolution. What are their tactics, coping mechanisms um, when in conflict? And how do they reconcile? Will they reconcile with you? Will they apologize? Is that really difficult for them? Or is it something they're willing to engage in with you? Um, can you go back one, please? Oh, wait, actually, back one more. Sorry, I wasn't done yet. <laughs> I forgot. Um, oh, no, I am done. Next slide, please. Sorry, Marcio. Um, it's like a game. Okay. All right. So our next stage is trust. Um, I put that little picture of <laughs> list of people I trust. Um, at different times, yes, I've definitely felt that. And I'm sure we all kind of have people, only a select amount of people in our life that we will actually trust with our deepest secrets. Didi, what was that stat from yesterday that you said? Which one? I think on... Oh, how many people have they would actually confide? Oh. Less than 25% of people in 2004 feel like they have someone that they can confide in and knows everything about them. Yeah. So that's okay if you don't because it's a normal statistic. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, different aspects, um, different things that will help you learn how to trust somebody or evaluate your level of trust. <coughs> of course, um, what you know about a person, the more that you know, the more that you can move up your trust level. Um, your past experiences and expectations. Um, we don't come into relationships as blank slates ever, unless we've just had a traumatic brain injury. Um, we come in with all of our baggage, our past experiences, our expectations, associations. Um, does your partner remind you of someone from the past? 
Is that a good memory, a bad memory? You carry that with you. Ideals, um, does this partner meet my ideal, idealistic concept of who I'd like to be with? Um, that could be physical, that could be in their different qualities, that could be in their profession. Um, I met a guy, this is a funny story. I met a guy at the gym last night, not interested or anything, but um, that was a gemologist. I never <coughs> met a gemologist, somebody that studies rocks. At first I thought he said gerontologist. I was like, hmm, interesting. And then I realized he goes, no, I own a jewelry store. Okay, that's not my like ideal career to be married to just because I've never thought about that. Um, anywho, okay, side note, stereotypes. And then of course, how you typically think of certain types of people or individuals. Um, <coughs> So these are different factors. I was going to give a personal example, but I think I'll save it. Um, these are different factors that will help develop your trust. Okay, next slide, please. Um, so research shows that there are eight traits of a really trustworthy partner that help provide mutual satisfaction um, and happiness in marriage or in a relationship, and particularly in marriage. So we have the marriage acronym: mature, adaptable, responsible, relational, insightful assertive, giving, and emotionally stable. Most of these are kind of self-explanatory, but they're really important to always hold on to and consider. Are they mature? Are they able to put your <coughs> needs before themselves and delay gratification? Do they think long-term versus short-term? Adaptable, are they flexible with changes in your daily routine? Changes with, um, big changes in your life? Can they hang with you for the long haul? Are they responsible? Will they follow through on promises and commitments? Can you rely on them? Relational, okay, do they have a need for companionship? Do they also value outside relationships? Um, insightful, are they able to understand um, yourself, understand oneself from another perspective? Then assertive, um, assertive, it's nice to have somebody who knows what they want, wants, want, excuse me, and goes after it. They have determination in that way. You don't want somebody that just kind of blows like a bag in the wind. Um, giving, do they enjoy making you happy? Do they enjoy bringing life and love to other people as well? And then are they emotionally stable? <coughs> Normal ranges of emotion and receptivity to emotion of others. Okay, they don't have this huge scale that goes from low, low, low to just a mess, a basket case. You want them to be kind of somewhere in the middle but be able to feel all ranges of emotions. Okay, so I'm gonna show you on the slider. Um, what this might look like. So, these are some, uh, two examples of a, an emotionally high-risk, excuse me, a high-risk relationship with trust. Um, so, if you're over-trusting, like we talked about before, this might be when you are kind of trusting and naive of someone. You know little about them, but you've decided that you can trust them. This is really common, and um, I would encourage you to not ever feel guilt about that because it happens to everybody, um, but it's something to be on the look, lookout for. Um, other times, you might know somebody really well. You might, they might have actually proven that you can trust them over time. You can rely on them, they've committed to you. Hopefully that's down, because you're not married yet. But they do one thing wrong, and oh no, I have trust issues again, I can't trust. Okay, these are kind of our two extremes. All right, next slide, please. Okay, the next stage is rely. So reliance grows from the ways you meet another person's need as well as how well they meet your needs. So um, researchers, excuse me, struggling to say that word. Research has shown us that the most satisfying relationships have this mutual meeting of one another's needs. So 
how can you learn about what your partner <coughs> what your partner wants? Well, you have to ask them. You have to talk to them. Look out for different things that they're interested in. Um, I have this picture up here. If you rely on someone else, you can only go as far as they go. The importance of this really is in the two, what am I trying to say? Both people doing it at once. It needs to be mutual. Otherwise, the relationship is going to be one-sided. There's going to be resentment that grows. There are four kind of roughly different types of potential needs. Social needs, can you count on them to be at an event with you? Um, can you count on them to be there for you? Um, emotional, are you able to be vulnerable with them and still hold on to that relationship? Are they going to judge you for it? Are they going to threaten to leave you if you get too emotional one day? You need to be able to have your emotional needs met by them and also meet theirs. Um, logistical, can you count on them to show up at something? Can you count on them to take you to the LAX? That's a big ask for anybody, but they should be able to do that. Okay, and financial, that's not recommended necessarily until marriage, but of course, in dating, there are small financial needs, needs that you could potentially help your partner meet. What might some of those be? Kelly. Paying for a date. Paying for a date, yes. Think of like minor emergencies. Quarters for laundry. Quarters for laundry. Yeah, that shouldn't be too much of an ask, hopefully. Gas money. Gas money. Yep, I was thinking of that one. Groceries, if you're having a rough week and they go and pick up some groceries for you. So there are still healthy, acceptable ways to meet their financial needs early on. Um, so on the good side, when we're looking at our relationship attachment model slider board, um, the good news about reliance is it can be done well and if you maintain clear boundaries. Okay, if you ask them to help you with a project for school, if you have somebody in your congregation that is um, asking a partner to rely on them, or to give, oh, words, come on. If they're asking something of their partner, um, you need to encourage them to make sure that they don't kind of overstep their boundaries, that there's this clear understanding of where this relationship is going, what needs to be done, whose responsibility is what. Um, if we're looking at the bad side of reliance, this is when we can get into codependency. So. You start to know somebody, you start to trust them a little bit more, um, but your reliance has gone way up. You've started to rely on them to meet needs that they haven't actually proven that they can meet for you, whether that's emotional or any types of those four needs. Your reliance is up when they haven't proven themselves worthy of that. Um, and that can happen pretty quickly. And then, oftentimes, you'll move your reliance back down. Um, another extreme of this is when you start to know somebody, you trust somebody a little bit more and more, but you can't rely on them for anything. <coughs> so this is your emotionally kind of constricted partner. It might be your emotionally unavailable partner. How oftentimes do you hear somebody say, ah, I feel like he's kind of a pillar of stone, a pillar of strength. Like I can only go so far emotionally with him. He can only give me so much. Oftentimes that stems from childhood. They've had a, a parent that's been um, a little bit emotionally constricted themselves. They haven't received affection, witnessed emotion, witnessed how to be vulnerable, and have that been received well. So they only kind of have, they have this stopping point of how, how much you can rely on them for. <coughs> so we've got over-reliance and under-reliance. Um, next slide, please. So um, if you're interested, here are some factors that you can consider for reliance when you're thinking about um, a partner. What are some characteristics of a partner that would meet my need? 
How fast should I grow to depend on a partner? How do I know if my partner is overly dependent? How do I know if I'm overly dependent? These are all important things to consider. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, then we get to commitment. Um, so commitment, obviously the final seal of commitment in a relationship is marriage. Um, and that's the best commitment. God wants that for us. Um, but like Kelly's saying, we might not know if we're going to get married, and that's certain. Um, but we can certainly date in a way that would lend itself well to a healthy marriage. So the extent to which you feel like you belong to someone and that they belong to you is a measure of the degree of commitment in your relationship. So as your commitment increases, your responsibility to maintain that relationship, nurture it well, also increases. Um, what are some examples of commitment you can think of in dating relationships? So you consider your own experiences, or your grandchildren, or your children. What are some kind of early markers of commitment you might see? <coughs> These could be good, good ones, of course. Uh, maybe when you commit to dating exclusively, like you're no longer going to be seeing anyone else. Yes, yep, absolutely. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Kelly. Like doing a Bible study together, or like being in a, like some type of group together at the same time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think of, there's sort of this kind of, um, what do they call it? I've heard it at Pepperdine, a soft launch of your partner. So some, sometimes um, people are putting their partner on Instagram, like they, they tag them, and this is their soft launch of me committing to them um, exclusively and publicly. It's interesting how it's all evolving. Um, so commitment really involves sacrifice um, because you're committing to giving up other options. You're committing to meet the needs of another person and um, set aside your own interests sometimes. Commitment is especially bonding because you're acknowledging the fact that you belong to someone and they belong to you. Not in an unhealthy way, but in a loving, committed way, of course. Um, okay, next slide, please, Mauricio. So we talked about that. Next slide, actually. So when might too much commitment be dangerous for a relationship? <coughs> have you guys think about that? What have you witnessed or experienced? When friendships outside of that relationship really start to fall apart and just not spending the time or effort to meet with friends or family. Absolutely. Yep. Just a sole focus on that one partner. examples when commitment might become dangerous? Maybe if you feel pressured into making a commitment, that it's not something you're choosing for yourself, but you feel like your partner is pressuring you to make that. Okay. Yeah. When it's out of whack with um, no trust or lie, like it's, it's more commitment. Yeah. You're starting to know somebody, trust, relying on them a little bit, but the commitment has shot way up. Yeah. So you're overly committing, or everything's gone really well. I've had a, one of my best friends was with um, her partner for seven years. He never talked about getting engaged or proposing, so the commitment was slow. I can imagine first couple years, okay, we're taking it slow, getting to know each other, but eventually that lack of commitment starts to move the other areas of these forces back down. You start to grow resentful, can't trust them, will they meet my needs in the future? Doesn't seem like it start to go down again. Thank you, Kelly. So low commitment, extreme high commitment. 
Okay, next slide, please. Um, oh, this is so much. Um, if you want to take a picture, please do. Um, just in general, some commitment questions to consider. Um, general questions about commitment. I love uh, to hear from people that we will figure it out later. We'll talk about this in another time. If you hear that we language, that's oftentimes a really good sign. Family background, looking at how did their parents or caregivers commit to each other? Did they commit to each other? How did they live that out with one another? Um, and former friends and romantic partners. Some examples of your par partner's commitment to other people. If they have children, if they're divorced and they have children, that's a whole other relationship dynamic and commitment where their kids are gonna probably come first a lot of the time. Um, is your partner loyal to those that depend on him or her? Work commitments, friend commitments. Next slide, please. Okay, and our last one, touch. Okay, I put this up here, um, 1 Corinthians 6, 12. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial for me. I will not be mastered by anything. Um, I really love this verse, and it's, it's really, I've really sat with it for a long time. Um, God gives us free will. We all know that. We have the ability to do things that we want. And he loves us so much that he doesn't desire to cut off that free will or to tell us what we can and cannot do. But he tells us, for our protection, that certain levels of physical touch, especially sexual intercourse, of course, outside of marriage, are not good for us because they have the potential to hurt us emotionally. Um, they have the potential to draw us away from God. So um, with physical touch, we think of it on a spectrum, like I was saying kind of in the beginning, um, hand-holding, side hug, church hug, um, hips out. There's all these different types of hugs, right? Um, up, to up to kissing, um, and then, of course, progressing, progressing, and then sexual intercourse. Uh, next slide, please, Marisu. So um, I want to just highlight a couple of things. When you think about sex, and when you're talking to young adults that are considering, should I wait until marriage? Should I re-wait until marriage? Because we're fools if we think that people in college, even at Christian colleges, aren't having sex. It happens. People make mistakes. Um, so, but there's actually a physical side of it. Um, uh, science, excuse me, science supports God's design um, for us to wait until marriage because our brains are impacted so heavily by physical touch. Um, did you know that actually within 20 seconds of hugging someone, oxytocin is released? So that's the same chemical that's present in sex, of course. Um, so these are three main neurotransmitters. Um, that are activated when we're sexually intimate with somebody. Um, dopamine, this is our reward chemical, our pleasure chemical. So um, you can think about it when you go down a roller coaster for the first time. Lots of dopamine. Um, when I go to the gym, I get lots of dopamine. I'm happy. Um, oxytocin, this is um, oxytocin <coughs> and vasopressin are both chem bonding chemicals found in both male and female. But oxytocin is most heavily, strongly found in female. We kind of call it our female bonding chemical and vasopressin, our male bonding chemical. Um, something to note, and what makes this really interesting, is that all of these neurotransmitters, neurochemicals, excuse me, are values neutral. Do you have any idea what values neutral might be? What, what it might mean? Okay, so values neutral means that these chemicals don't recognize whether what you're doing is good or bad for you. So if you're having sex, your brain's not gonna know, oh, this person is not my husband, this person is not good for me. Um, it's still gonna be released. That's why you're still gonna be connected with them. You can't separate sex um, from yourself. 
You can't separate relation from your body. And um, all of these chemicals lose effectiveness over time. So you think about dopamine, the first time you go down a really huge roller coaster, maybe the second and the third time, it's really exciting, really scary. I don't know how you, if you enjoy riding roller coasters or not, but by about the 10th time, right? It could be, you know, reading a book, whatever. It's not as exciting. Same with sex. Um, it damages our ability to experience that rush, that excitement, um, that closeness, that intimacy with people over time and with the more partners that we have, which is how God didn't design it to be. He wants us to have that with our spouse most intimately. Not most intimately, you know what I mean? In general, <laughs> in marriage. Um, can you go to the next slide, please? Where is you? So some relational impacts of sex. Um, it can be really bonding and blinding. So this can be really good for marriage. Okay, many of you who are married um, might have experienced this when you're having a fight or things aren't going well. Um, physical intimacy can make you overlook some of the, maybe the pitfalls or things that you're presently annoyed with your spouse about, but it's really bad for dating. Why do you think it might be bad for dating if sex is bonding and blinding? Yeah, absolutely. Overlook the red flags. Um, I'm sure you've witnessed partners that seem to fight all the time, but then have sex and things get better for a short period of time, right? Not forever. The sex covers up all of the negative aspects of the relationships. Um, and it also impacts your future relationships. It damages your ability to bond with people more deeply and more intimately, um, how God created you to bond with them in marriage. Um, because it normalizes the sort of super highways in your brain um, to accept that short-term relationships are something that it should expect. It knows that a cutoff is coming. It knows, it starts to believe that you can separate sex um, from marriage. There's this disconnect. And then put that quote up there, the choices you now make will shape the beliefs you someday hold. So there was some survey done that said that I think it's like 83 or 82% of young adults believe um, that their right par partner is out there and that, um, oh, what was it? <laughs> Sorry, I just forgot. The right partner is out there and that the choices they make in their dating relationships, if they have sex before marriage, it will, it can impact their future relationships. Um, so even with, with having that knowledge in light of that, um, we need to be really aware of encouraging young adults and people um, that are not married that the more often they kind of go back on their beliefs, the more likely they are to stick with their current behavior. So if they're having sex more often, eventually something's got to give. Your morals are going to start to shift a little bit and you'll probably normalize having sex outside of marriage more often. Um, okay, next slide please. So, um, some, I don't know if fun facts are the right word, but that's what I chose. Um, more premarital sex equals fewer lasting marriages. So there were some studies done showing that um, the more often that people had sex outside of marriage, the higher the divorce rate. They also controlled for different factors such as socioeconomic status, gender, um, uh, education level. Um, more premarital sex, the second stat, equals fewer faithful marriages. Um, so people were more likely to have um, infidelity in their marriages if they had more premarital sex partners. Of course, this is not always true. But in these particular studies, this is what they found. That's something to consider. And then the last um, statistic, or fun fact, 
most sexually satisfied couples were those who were married and had the fewest sexual partners and did, not, and did not live together before marriage. So cohabitation obviously is something that we're seeing more and more. Um, people living together outside of marriage as a way to test out their partner, see how we fit, see how we work. I'll admit, when I was younger, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. I don't want to move in with somebody I don't know. That seems dangerous. Um, not necessarily the case. Living together can actually increase um, anxiety, depression, in intimate partner violence, conflict within your relationship. It lowers your commitment because you're kind of giving somebody an out to say, oh, I've decided in this time period that things aren't going to work for us. But marriage is ultimate commitment. It's this big leap of faith commitment that you take when you marry someone, and that involves moving in with them. Um, okay, is that the last slide, Marcio? Okay, so I'm going to show you one last part on the relationship attachment model. So if we're thinking about a high-risk relationship, this might be, these might be kind of our uh, recreational hookups that we see today in today's culture. Relational sex. You might start dating someone, things go well, in a couple months you decide to have sex in hopes that the relationship will continue to increase. So this is when you've gotten to know somebody a little bit, you're starting to trust them, you feel like you can rely on them. Commitment? somewhere but it's gone up a little bit touch has gone way up you're putting yourself at risk for heartbreak for pain um, there's only one extreme we're not going to do no touch but if we have high touch before you have all these different factors you're putting yourself at risk to be vulnerable in a relationship um, to kind of experience all of those heartaches and those difficulties that we talked about in the beginning of a relationship <coughs> conflicts um, okay Yes, that is my time. So I hope that this model and this visual was helpful to you. Um, the relationship attachment model, I put the picture of the book up there by Dr. John Van Up, um, is available online. Our curriculum, How to Date the Best, today was kind of a blend of part of our curriculum with some of these elements and then some elements from the rela relationship attachment model um, and sex and cohabitation, different elements of that. Um, so these are available on our website, shop.boonecenter.pepperdine.edu, at least the how to date the best module is, and I think we're so, yeah, we have our curriculum up here. If you'd like to look through any of our eight modules, we have, here we go, I will attempt to list all eight. You can do <laughs> we it. We got <laughs> dating, family relationships, sex, uh, relationship with God, relationship with friends, boundaries, communication, conflict, and Christ. No, communication, conflict, one, technology. I have to say them in the same order. Yeah, I can't the order. keep them all straight. So we've got them all there if you're interested. They're great for young adults. There's single session, 45-minute presentations, and six-week small group curriculum for young adults. Um, any questions as I'm getting the hook? <laughs> or comments? <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs>